A very good morning to you. This is a beautiful Sunday morning that the Lord has made for us, and I'm glad that you've joined us here on www.godsredeemed.org. This is the website of the Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ. We're located in Murfreesboro, Tennessee at 2091 Pitts Lane, and we'd love to have you come and join us in worship on Sunday mornings at 1030. You're welcome to come inside the building if you observe uh, the rules of social distancing and have a mask. If you're not comfortable with doing that, uh, we also uh, provide the opportunity for you to uh, park on the south side of our parking lot, tune your radios to FM 106.3, and participate in the service. Make sure, uh, if either is your choice, to bring your Lord's Supper supplies, uh, your grape juice, and your unleavened bread, that you may fellowship with us and Christ around the table. We're glad to see you here this morning. As I said, I think today's study will be uh, beneficial uh, for all of us, and uh, I pray that will be the case. We're going to take a look at the Corinthians' uh, position on uh, going to law against a brother and on fornication. We'll discuss some of the things uh, that may have influenced uh, both their uh, decision to participate and condone adultery as well as fornication, but we'll get into that a little later. First, let's uh, have a short review of last week's lesson. We talked about incest, and there was a brother in the congregation who was living with his father's wife, with his stepmother. It seems that one of the biggest problems that the Corinthians had was this uh, sense of what was morality and what was okay uh, for them to participate in. In chapter 5, we discuss the problem of incest, and as we continue today, it's connected to these next two problems of going to uh, law against your brother and the problem they had with fornication. The problem of incest uh, was more than just this brother living with his uh, mother, uh, stepmother. The problem was that it was well known throughout the community and it was spreading. The other thing is that the brethren at Corinth had not addressed this issue with the brother who was in sin and they had let it fester and go on and it had become a problem. It became a problem within the church and it became a problem without the church. And that's always a case when church matters leave the congregation. When they get out into the world and uh, make themselves targets of gossip and uh, uh, false accusations, then the church becomes uh, soiled. Paul said that this condition of living in sin with the father's wife uh, was unknown among the Gentiles. They didn't even approve of such things. And to make matters worse, in Leviticus, the 18th chapter, verses 7 through 8, the law of Moses forbade such relationships. The congregation, rather than being 
uh, angry rather than being concerned for the brother's soul, rather than going to him uh, as Jesus asked, uh, commanded us to do and talk with him about this sin and urge him to repentance, uh, they had simply let it go and they'd become puffed up that it was a thing almost of a badge of merit. And so Paul says you need to take action against this brother. And the action should be taken in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ there in verse 3. All action, especially that of discipline of a brother or sister within the local church, should be done in the name of Christ. Well, what does that mean? It should be done with love for the brother or sister. It should be done with mercy and grace. It should be done with an effort in love of the brother or sister to bring them back to repentance, to ensure that they understand the seriousness of their falling away. The action should be taken when the congregation was gathered together. We talked a little bit about church discipline, and we said when it comes uh, before the congregation, it's a very serious matter. Uh, and it should be taken uh, at that step. But there are two steps before that, which ought to prevent it from uh, becoming uh, such a serious matter. The first point, Jesus said, if you've got something against your brother, go to him. Talk to him. Let him know that he is in sin. Let him know that his soul is in danger. And pray with him and talk with him that he may experience godly sorrow, which leads to repentance and come to this understanding that in order to be restored uh, to the kingdom of God and to God the Father, he needs to make repentance confessing his sins, and our God, who is faithful and just, will forgive him. If he won't do that, the second step is to take two or three brethren with you, that they may be also encouraging of the brother, but also be witnesses of his decision. And after that point, if he still refuses to repent, if he still refuses uh, to leave the darkness that he's gathered uh, around him. Then it needs to be brought before the congregation. There needs to be prayer. There needs to be much talking and praying with the brother from the other members of the congregation. And then with fe uh, fellowship needs to be withdrawn from that brother. And so when we look at uh, Paul's idea, or not Paul's idea, uh, Paul's commandments on uh, withdrawal. It's not to condemn the man permanently and set him adrift, never to be heard from again, but he should be delivered to Satan. A lot of people have had problems understanding this phrase. He, we should deliver him back to the darkness from whence he came. Uh, Satan is the prince of darkness and that realm. And that's where we all came from. We were all transformed from darkness into God's light. How did we do that? 
Well, we heard the word of God, the gospel of Christ. We believed it. And then we, because of that, we repented of our sins. We confessed Christ before men that he is the Son of God, that he did come in the flesh. He is the Christ. And we were baptized into his name. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we came up out of that water a new man, and we put on Christ. But some people take Christ off when it becomes unpleasant, when he becomes uncomfortable, when it just doesn't suit their idea of how to behave. And so this person who was once enlightened, who was once transformed from the darkness of the world into light, should be given back to the world until uh, they see their need for uh, repentance. The, pers uh, the purpose of this action is for the destruction of the flesh, he says in verse 3, that the spirit may save. That's what we have in mind, not some sort of uh, anger, some sort of retribution, uh, some sort of making sure uh, that this person knows that he's not welcome here. No, we're told to treat the brother that we disfellowship from or withdraw from, uh, not as an enemy, but as a brother. And we continue to pray and we continue to work for his salvation. Paul says that the purpose of withdrawing fellowship is redemptive, and it should always be that. We should always have the sinner's soul in mind, the sinner's soul to receive God's message, to turn from his ways as the prodigal son did. It took a lot to wake up the prodigal son. But when he saw his condition, he was ready to come back to his father. And that's what we pray for the one with whom we've withdrawn our fellowship. Should never be uh, for ret uh, retribution, always redemptive. There's a danger, we said, in spreading immorality and allowing it to go through the church. It's like leaven. It's quick acting. And it goes quickly unless uh, left unchecked. So uh, as we compared uh, this to the Passover, we mentioned that during the Passover week, uh, three to four days were spent cleaning the house where the Seder uh, meal would be observed and where the Passover would be taken. Uh, they had a little game for the children. The parents would sometimes hide yeast in a little bag, and they would hide it somewhere in the house. And as they were cleaning the house, uh, if one of the children or when one of the children found the bag, uh, the parents would reward him or her with a, with a little gift. And it was to teach them that yeast can spread and contaminate that's which should not. And certainly, uh, not only fornication, but division and evil speaking, murmuring and other things can uh, suddenly become a flood and overtake a congregation if the elders don't pay attention to what's going on and correct it uh, immediately. 
Paul corrects some of their previous misconceptions in verse 9 and uh, through 13. He notes that the church is forbidden to keep company uh, with impenitent sinners and those who uh, continue to sin, thinking it's okay. Uh, they're not right. And I believe that if we look deeply, uh, those of you who uh, attend uh, Northfield Boulevard Church of Christ and sat in the class that we had on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John last year, we talked quite a bit about the Gnostics. And the Gnostics uh, was a philosophy. <clears throat> it was a group of people who had developed this philosophy uh, in the Greek, and they had uh, been teaching it uh, to churches and contending with them over these matters. And they had many things to say against Christ. Number one, that if Christ and God are deity and, and the Holy Spirit are deity, they could have had nothing to do uh, with the creation of uh, this earth, since all matter is evil. We also uh, talked about their ideas that Christ did not come in the flesh, or if he uh, did come in the flesh, uh, there was a substitute uh, on the cross, and Christ's deity did not die. That Christ's deity left the cross before uh, before he went on the cross. Uh, he left before he could die because he is a deity and could not have anything to do with that. John, you remember, called these antichrists. He called them people with the spirit of Antichrist. This idea of Antichrist, uh, John simply means that they are opposite of what Christ taught. And they were leading many astray, not only in John's time, but Paul had difficulty with them in other congregations and addressed them. But the main uh, idea they uh, proposed to Christians was that the body and the mind are separate. And therefore, what the body does may be sin, but the mind has not sinned. And so what Paul is saying here is you can sin and you can lose your name in the book of life. And you can lose your uh, eternal life. And so he says, in order to keep this idea of constantly uh, sinning when you have put on Christ, uh, you've got to put away from among yourselves that wicked person, verse 13. It has to be stopped. Uh, just as uh, people weed their gardens, if you leave weeds unchecked, they'll choke your gardens and you'll have very little, if any, uh, fruit. So we looked last week as we close our review uh, at this problem of immorality uh, as adultery and incest. And there are many other sexual uh, problems that would uh, probably be known as well if we were able to investigate that. And so we look at the connection here between church discipline and immorality. There were other things that had not gone uh, checked, uh, particularly this brother who went to court 
Uh, it was a pagan court, and he went against his uh, brother in this public court, uh, and the church had not intervened. And we look at the problem of litigations and ask, is there a problem uh, with going to court? Is there a problem with suing uh, someone to recover damages or to recover property uh, or uh, what other cases there may be? But he addresses the problem of going to court against a brother there in verses one through eight. The problem of, of lawsuits uh, arose, and we don't know what uh, the lawsuit was about. We don't know any of the evidence uh, any of the subjects or how it ended. But we can understand that Paul wanted us to understand, as well as them, that a brother should never take another brother to court. The text teaches that Christians ought to be able to solve their problems among each other. And the reason he says that is looking uh, to the end of time on that great day of judgment, he says that we're going to be the judges of the world and of angels there in verses two and three. So we're going to judge the world and angels. Don't you think we ought to be able to judge the trivial things of this earth among ourselves? Well, we ought to, but sometimes we don't. When one brother takes another to court before unbelievers, he brings shame upon himself and the church. We uh, look at courts today. There are a lot of court TVs uh, shows. There is Judge Judy and there's Judge Mathis and there's uh, Judge Tom and Judge uh, Dick and, and Judge Harry and Judge Bob for any time of the day, if you want to see drama, if you want to see uh, disrespect, if you want to see hate, and all sorts of things you shouldn't be seeing and shouldn't be encouraged by, you can see it. But think about if this were two Christians and we knew which congregation they worshiped at. Perhaps some of the things that they said to each other might bring shame upon them. It might bring shame upon the church. And Paul said it would. It leads to gossip. It leads to uh, imaginations going wild. And it leads uh, sometimes to slander and libel against the church. And we don't want that. The church is Christ's bride. And he's commanded us to keep her spotless and white and clean. Well, how do we address the problem of someone who's been wronged? Well, Christians should seek out the wise in their congregation to settle their differences, verses four and five. Aren't there men in the congregation who have great experience in settling things, in deciding and choosing and discerning? Certainly our elders, but aren't there also men who by their experience and by their study are teachers, are preachers, are wise in the things of God and the wise in the things of business and uh, other things of this world? 
And so we need to find those men and use them as arbit arbiters uh, to arbitrate our uh, problems with each other. And that means we find someone who is neutral in the affair and uh, sit down and present our uh, words to them, uh, our understanding of the situation, and then present proof to back it up. But they hadn't done that, and the church hadn't encouraged them to do that either. So if we remember this uh, word that we sometimes use, binding arbitration, whereas we bring this neutral person in and we uh, present uh, the situation and then present uh, our uh, with our evidence uh, to him and allow him to ask questions and discern what uh, the solution should be, having agreed before we go in there that whatever he says, that's going to be how it's going to be. That's binding arbitration. And we need to use that in the church to keep things in the church and not outside where things can go haywire and Christians and churches can be defamed and shamed. So when we look at what Paul is saying is wrong with us going to court with one another, he says it comes right back to the heart. The spirit that leads one brother to take another brother to court is sinful. It's that idea of not loving our brother. When we have a problem with a brother, we ought to sit down, just as Jesus said, and talk about it and settle it. Sometimes pride gets in the way. Sometimes greed gets in the way. And a host of other things that prevent us from settling things among each other. That's why Paul said in verses 7 and 8 that it's the spirit, it is the heart that leads one uh, to take his brother to court. It, uh, it emphasizes the unfairness uh, of this action, that it can lead to us being ensnared in uh, defrauding the brother or in acting unjustly or to rob someone on these uh, court televisions and dramas, have you seen people who lied in order to get something more than they deserve? Have you seen people uh, paint pictures of exaggeration uh, in order to get more money? It is a sin. It is a an infection and a dereliction of the heart that is leading us to want to do this to our brother and to even possibly shame him. Sometimes lawsuits become uh, just another tool to get a little more money here, get a little more prestige there, or whatever it is our hearts are seeking, uh, which is unrighteous uh, towards our brother. Paul then, as he concludes this, tells us that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. They had to be told that. Their idea of this uh, Gnostic spirit that told them that they could continue to sin uh, with the body and the, sp and the spirit would be okay was simply not true. 
the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And he begins a long list here of things uh, that prevent one from going to heaven. First, he mentions fornicators. Fornicators are those who indulge in unlawful sexual intercourse, who may uh, rape someone or uh, commit incest. They may be homosexuals or other sexual sins, such as fornication and adultery. He also mentions idolaters, and we know that idolatry was frequently associated with sexual immorality. We go back to Exodus uh, 32, verse 6, in the book of Exodus, when Moses went up on the mountain with God to speak with him, or have God speak to him and give him these tablets on which the law was given. There was a great noise from the camp that Moses and God both heard, and it was the sound of people rebelling against God. They had duped Aaron into taking the gold that they had brought from Egypt and creating this golden calf, and they danced around it. They were committing lewd acts of a sexual nature, and that's when Moses became angry, you, you remember, and he broke uh, the tablets in two. Eventually, he destroyed that idol and forced them, as he mixed it in the water, uh, to drink it. So I'd, you remember also, before I go on to adulterers, that the city of Corinth in their temple had over a thousand uh, temple prostitutes, both heterosexual and homosexual uh, sexuals to uh, whoever would desire to participate in that uh, could have freely or for a price. The adulterers. These are the ones who have sexual intercourse with someone who's not their mate, someone who's another person's wife or another person's husband. Jesus condemned it in Matthew, the 19th chapter and verse 9. He also talked about the effeminate, which will not enter into uh, the kingdom of heaven or into heaven, actually. The effeminate, that word malakoi, uh, means soft to the touch, one who is very feminine. Uh, you can see feminine in that word, effeminate. Uh, he is a catamite, and you ask, what is a catamite? Well, a catamite was simply a boy, a young boy who was trained as he uh, grew to become uh, a slave to these uh, homosexual males and submitted his body to unnatural lewdness with them. Also, the abusers of mankind, that is, those homosexuals who would lie with a male as uh, with a female, uh, sometimes called sodomites or a homosexual, uh, they will not see heaven. Even though the world claims they will, that God loves all men, here is written, through the Holy Spirit, they will not, unless they repent. Thieves who steal from another, covetous people, eager to have more, especially those things that belong to others. They're greedy. They want gain. They want anything that they can get uh, illegally, if necessary, to uh, supply their 
uh, greed and desire for things that are not theirs. Also, we look at drunkards, those who are intoxicated, whether from drink or from drugs. And yes, they did have drugs in those days. When you read in scripture uh, the word strong drink, <clears throat> in most times, uh, that is wine that has been mixed uh, with either an intoxicating herb or uh, an intoxicating potion that was mixed up and poured in and mixed with the wine. It uh, forced the one who drank it to uh, become intoxicated much quicker and uh, to have a much uh, higher high. Uh, you may have heard it said in these days in this world. Also the revilers, those who verbally assault others viciously sometimes and heap abuse on others, a railer. Well, when I read this passage, I'm always uh, taken to uh, the boxers and the wrestlers who will talk about their opponent uh, before a match or during a press conference. And they try to draw the crowd and draw attention to themselves, uh, talking about the, uh, their opponent uh, in less than favorable words and often using words that are blasphemous and words that are not fit for us to hear. Well, when we look at these people in Corinth, they were also extortioners. They were people who would uh, threaten violence against someone in order to receive a payment or to receive uh, something in return. We probably could use the word blackmail uh, to these people, but here in this congregation, there were folks who were addressed because Paul says, such were some of you. And they had been these things. They had been homosexuals. Well, wait a minute. I thought homosexuals, uh, that was just the way you're born. Well, that's what the world and Satan would have us to believe. But here is pointed out that they changed. Well, how did they change? Was it some miracle that happened? No, it was the power of the word of God the power of the gospel of Christ, which caused them to change. Well, what about the, the drunkards? Isn't that a disease? Well, if it was, they received the cure from the great, uh, great physician. Uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ and his power to convict and his power to transform. They had stopped their drinking. They had put on Christ. Well, what about the liars and the blackmailers and the extortioners and all of the sexually immoral? Yes, they had done that, but they had been changed. Any doctrine that teaches that a person can continue in these practices and continue on to heaven and be well received uh, is very much mistaken. And such thought is contrary to what Christ has taught and what the Holy Spirit has taught throughout the Word of God. Paul kind of mentions the change that the gospel made in the Corinthians when he says that. But I think it's an important thing to see. When you look at all of those horrible things, he said 
you were some of those things. In other words, some of you people in the congregation, whatever it was that pushed your button or whatever it was that became your vice or your desire, you change those. They cease their practice of sin. And what did it? Well, of course, it was baptism, the same baptism that those on the day of Pentecost received after hearing the gospel preached there on the day of Pentecost as they were gathered together in Acts 2.38. Uh, they were pricked in their hearts. They had killed Christ, the Son of God. What must we do to be saved? And he said, repent and be baptized every one of you for the remission of your sins in the name of Jesus, the Son, God the Father, and the Spirit. And that's what they did. They were saved the same way people are being saved today. There's been no change other than in man's philosophies of sprinkling or pouring or the sinner's prayer or having Jesus taking him in as your personal Savior, none of those will get you to heaven. Only hearing the word, believing it, repenting of your sins, confessing Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and being baptized into his death, coming up a new creature, taking off the old man as you come out, and taking on Christ. As many of us who've been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The baptism washed away their sins and at the same time justified and sanctified those who believed. Their baptism was in the name of the Lord. Their baptism was the same baptism, immersion baptism, that's preached throughout the scripture. Well, Paul has another warning for them. He warns them that they should flee fornication. I like the way that's worded in verses 12 through 20, but particularly flee fornication. Paul brings this section to a close by telling them to do whatever you can to escape. When we think about the word flee, there are some who uh, flee prison, some who flee uh, dictators, some who flee various serious things, and fornication is serious. Brothers and sisters, sex that urge between husband and wife. And sometimes the urge when we see things we should not see, and it's both male and female, may cause us to go over the edge and commit fornication, those acts that we talked about before. But he says, flee it, run. Do what you can to escape and hide in the word of God, under God's sheltering hand. Flee, get away from it, and as far away from it as you can. But what do we do today? Unfortunately, we bring it into our homes. We bring it close to our children by way of video games or music, television, cable, movies. I'm not saying all of those are bad things, but they are packaged to present various images 
through all, all ages and to man and to woman. But we need to flee the very idea, the very urges that we have. Yes, God placed them there for the proper uh, use and the proper enjoyment between man and woman as husband and wife. And the marriage bed is the only place God authorizes uh, these urges to be acted on uh, lawfully. And so when he says flee, he also introduces this subject by quoting his opponent's arguments, the Gnostics. All things are lawful unto me. Meats for the belly and belly for the meats, he says. This statement of all things are lawful to me is probably part of Paul's teaching uh, that the Old Testament distinction between clean and unclean meats was abrogated. And as he teaches us that there is no difference between the body and the mind, they both are capable of sin and both capable of keeping us uh, from entering into heaven. Uh, all things are lawful to me, but not everything that is lawful is expedient. What Paul was teaching was some things that are lawful are not good for us. Even a lawful action can't be practiced unless it edifies, unless it builds up, and the one who practices it uh, is not ex uh, enslaved to it, verses 12 and 13. And so some of the Corinthians had extended what Paul had said in his teaching that all things are lawful to include fornication. The Corinthians concept, again, according uh, to what they had heard from the Gnostics, is that the body is one that is separated from the spirit and whatever the body does has no in impact on his spirit. Paul makes the following points here that you see on the screen uh, in regards to this. Number one, he says in verse 14, the body is for the Lord. Jesus Christ died uh, for us. The body is different for the Christian than what the world thinks of the body. When you look at the outside world, uh, the world is busy tattooing and piercing and doing all kinds of things for the body, but they're also uh, using that body to commit sin, fornication, adultery, lewdness, homosexuality, and other things. But our Lord's body was raised from the dead. His resurrection demonstrates that the Lord uh, Lord's body is for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Redemption is not merely forgiveness of one's sin, but it's the ultimate change uh, of his vile body into a glorious body, fashioned like the resurrected body of Christ, Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21. We need to care for our bodies, our temples, because we have put on Christ, and therefore the body is for the Lord, and it should resemble our Lord. The body is not for fornication. It's not to be used for every uh, whim that we have or every uh, thing that we desire to do uh, for pleasure, uh, for our own uh, image or our own desires. 
The body is for the Lord and not for the satisfaction of sensual lust. When we use it for that, when we commit uh, the act of fornication or adultery or any unclean or unlawful uh, sexual act, then we're hurting ourselves. I'm sinning against my body as well as the other person whom I am committing this fornication with. I'm also sinning against them. Fornication does a bad thing. It joins the members of Christ to a harlot, as Paul says in verses 15 and 17. Fornication is not morally neutral. Fornication affects the body, it affects the soul, it affects the mind, and it's not neutral like eating meats is. It's not a thing of the conscience, it's a thing of the soul. And Paul reminds the Corinthians that each individual Christian is a member of the body of Christ. Do you remember reading about Jesus and his parables as he talked about, I am the vine and you are the branches? When we put on Christ, we are grafted into Christ, we are joined with Christ, and we must live as Christ. In fornication, what we become grafted to is a harlot. And because we are of Christ, we graft her or him uh, into Christ. The two become one flesh. Isn't that a repulsive thing to think of, that the body of Christ could be joined to that of a promiscuous woman, a prostitute, and it be acceptable? But we have to remember, as Paul says, that the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's where the Holy Spirit resides to give us understanding, to lead us, and to guide us, and to help us with our prayers, to intercede for us. The Christian in body and spirit, the whole of man was bought with a price. That price couldn't fit on any of man's calculators or computers. That price is so great, it's hard for me uh, today, this morning, to even contemplate a God who would be willing to send his only begotten son and a son who would be obedient fully to his father and come to uh, mankind who is horrible, who is violent, who is rebellious, who is in his darkest hours, and yet Christ comes to this earth not in the form of deity, but in the form of flesh. And not just any flesh, but in a flesh of poverty. A poor man whom people thought had no education and therefore no authority nor any idea of what he was talking about. And because he was of God, because he did good things, because he loved all people and wanted all to be saved, what did he get for it? He was hoisted up on the cross after horrible beating and mutilation, bruising and battering and swelling. He was nailed to the cross and he hung there for us 
for me. In my darkest hour he died for me that I might be saved. And yet here the church at Corinth is rejecting this uh, for this uh, tickle the ears philosophy of the Gnostics that you can sin, you can do anything you want to, and God will overlook it all, and you can go to heaven. That's not true. And today, many people are listening to the Tickle My Ear uh, gospel in auditoriums and stadiums and theaters throughout the world from false teachers who are taking their souls and turning them down the wrong road that leads to hell and death. And so as Paul finishes his uh, chapter here and his argument about this uh, terribly selfish uh, idea, this anti-Christ idea, he says, therefore the Christian should flee fornication in verse 18 and any doctrine that encourages an indulgence in the flesh is contrary to Christianity, Antichrist. I ask you to, again, to remember those classes that we had on 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. The spirit of the Antichrist that he mentions is everything that is the opposite of Christ. It is against Christ. It denies everything that Christians hold dear that the Son of God did come in the flesh, that he did come to this earth, that he lived among us with great uh, anguish, with great despair and discouragement, with the same things that we suffer and tempted by the same things that we are tempted with to die in perfection. Having been the only one to have kept the law and fulfilled the law, who rose on the third day and ascended to heaven after 40 days here on the earth in glory and in victory. Anything or anyone that denies that is not some mythical beast that's going to come at the last day so everyone will know that Christ is coming. He's not some monster that will rise out of the sea or out of uh, Europe or Asia and uh, overtake the world in one swoop. That is not the Antichrist. If you believe that you can continue to conduct yourself as you did before baptism and still be pleasing to God, you have the spirit of Antichrist. If you continue in those things that you put off, when you put off the old man and put on Christ, if you've taken uh, Christ off, and gone back to the old man, you are anti-Christ. We can all be anti-Christ, just as the church here at Corinth had become uh, because of their lack of strength, their lack of understanding, and their being ruled in their hearts by those things that were being taught by the false teachers. The false teachers will come back into the picture uh, of Corinth in a little uh, later study. But I want to leave you with that thought, that we tend to point fingers at the church of Corinth in all of their disorder. 
in all of their uh, sin, in all of their failure to correct. And we can stand here all day and wag fingers and we can point at this and point at that and we can say, boy, they sure weren't very good Christians. But we need to be careful that it's not happening in our congregation, that it's not happening in our hearts to think what we do in our own homes is nobody's business. It's God's business. And he wants you to know that. Paul wants you to know that too. And he wants you to listen to your preachers. And he wants you to listen to their message, not just look at their appearance or their gift of gab, we, we say, instead of oratory. And he wants you to go to your brother when he or she is in sin and correct the problem quickly before it gets to the point of uh, congregational discipline. Love your brothers. Love your enemies. Love all. Love everyone and pray for everyone. And so we ask you as we close here, if you would like to share this with someone you feel might need to hear it, we'd be glad for you to do that. There are ways to do that here on the website and following this message. And we would appreciate it. If you have questions, if you have comments, by all means, uh, please address those uh, here on the website and let me know. I'll be sure to get your question or your comment. And if it needs to be addressed publicly, we'll do that. Otherwise, I'll contact you and, and we can study more about those things that you are either puzzled about or things that you would like to know more about. That's why we're here to teach God's word and to study his word that we may gain understanding and by gaining understanding wisdom and with wisdom a home in heaven with our Lord Jesus Christ. May God bless all of you today and we'll see you Lord willing next Sunday. Goodbye.